Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 289. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 289 you're listening to. My guest today is George Vlad. George is a sound recordist, a sound designer, a photographer, and if you read his LinkedIn profile, he's also an expedition leader with a keen interest in wildlife and conservation. What George does is travel to the far reaches of the globe to places that many of us would consider uncomfortable, and he goes to great effort to capture the sound of nature that is happening in these forests around the world in various countries. And I have been following him for months on LinkedIn with absolute fascination. He's also got a YouTube channel where he posts a lot of his adventures and advice. He's got a company called Mindful Audio, which I'll link to in the show notes. And George is just a little bit different kind of audio professional that we usually have on. And I'm super excited to have him on because what he does intrigues the living hell out of me. It's really fascinating what he does. So super excited to bring you George Vlad here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. I want to give a shout out and also want to talk to you about making time for what matters. Okay, so I got a book the other day and it showed up from Amazon addressed to me. I open it up. There's this book inside called Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. I didn't order this book and I talked talk to my wife. She didn't order the book for me. I thought maybe it's a you know Father's Day gift. So I was just puzzled. Who sent me this book? I checked my email, and lo and behold, longtime listener and fan of the show, Nick Statina. Thank you, Nick. Nick sent this, and Nick has sent me coffee. He sent me this book. Uh, he just, you know, what can I say? What, what a fan. Enough that he gets a shout-out in this section. And he brought it up to me that he felt like this book really addressed his continual interest in work-life balance, habits, and routines, and he said, if I, if I enjoyed Atomic Habits, this would be right up my alley, which I just talked about actually uh, in a recent episode. I'm gonna put a link in the show notes for you to check this out. I haven't even read it, but I trust Nick. So I figured that he had a reason for sending me this book and I'm gonna just recommend it to you. It's called Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day by Jake Knapp and John Zaratsky. And what do I have to say about that? Well, you know, it's funny. There's some of us out there who really like to burn the midnight oil with work and we prioritize work over everything else. There's something to be said for hard work. But if you're doing it and neglecting your family, then that's not exactly ideal. I know that there's many of you out there who say, well, you know the client, they've got to satisfy the clients and, and it's a lot of pressure. I get it, I do. but. You know, I'm gonna tell you this, and if, if you agree, fine, if you don't, no big deal. It seems that for me, when I've placed limitations around my time to others, A, they seem to respect me for it, and B, the ones that don't respect me for it, get out of the way, and hey, I don't wanna work with people that don't respect me. And those that do respect 
really seem to get their act together in terms of not wasting my time. It, it kind of announces to them, oh, this person is available only in this time of whatever, this, uh, these hours. Uh, they work from this time to this time. And they get it together. And those that don't value their own time, much less yours, they just don't have it together. And so uh, I'm not willing to um, bend over backwards and sacrifice time with my family and time to myself for clients like that. So that's, that's kind of my mini rant on that. I think you have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, are you being treated like a punching bag for some of your clients? You know, do they text you at all hours? And do they, you know, expect unreasonable delivery times? Well, you know, you can bend over backwards all you want, but at some point, I, I just, I don't think that those people are, are always the best people to be bending over backwards for. And it's only what you'll tolerate too. So if you, if you tolerate people texting you at, you know, 6 a.m. or, you know, 11, 11 p.m. at night as you're laying in bed, if you're laying in bed at 11 p.m. at night, unless you've made special arrangements, that's a different story. You know, don't tolerate it. Just don't respond. Or if you do respond, just say, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll focus on it tomorrow. If they're texting you in the middle of the night. Some, I just put my phone on do not disturb and I don't answer it until the following morning and address those needs then. So just consider it. Um, your time is valuable. And, you know, when you work, work hard and kick ass. Do not do anything less for clients. Give them your absolute best so that they want to come back to you. But when you're with your family, kick ass there too. Give them your all. Please don't have your, your face buried in your phone and not pay attention to people. That's just not cool. And learn when to put the work away because that's important. Because let me tell you, work comes and work goes. But when you got a family and you got those close to you, you know, whether you're married with kids or single and you have some good friends, make time for those in your life that are important to you. That is absolutely crucial. All right, that's it. I'll quit ranting. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, 
you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. George Vlad here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Romania, in a small village in the northeastern part of the country. And then where did your interest in audio begin? And when did audio start to draw you in as an interest? Audio in particular started to draw me in when I was about 14, and I realized that I didn't really enjoy the pop music that I would hear everywhere. So I was... I discovered electronic music, and I was very attracted to all the, like, the weird sounds that you could create in a computer, in a machine. Hmm. And through different routes and phases, I, I went from listening to music to DJing to producing some weird resemblance of electronic music, and then to eventually to sound design and sound recording. And along the way, language has played, it seems like a significant part of your life, because I noticed you speak five of them. Well, that's a bit that's a bit stretching it, I think. I, I speak four languages more or less fluently. <laughs> I'm learning Chinese now, which is a bit more difficult than the other languages I've, I've learned so far. And also speak a dialect that's spoken in the northern part of Italy, which is called Milanese. Yeah, I've been fascinated with languages. And I used to think that I'd become a linguist for a while. And I read some books on it. And I, whenever I get to a new country, I learn some like very useful words like, hello, goodbye, thank you, go left, go right, you know, danger, stuff like that. So, yeah, I could say that language did play a role in all this. When you learn a new language, do you learn best by listening or by reading? Well, some of the languages that I do learn, they don't really have a, like a writing system. For example, some of the African languages I, well, not necessarily learned, but got to learn a few words in. It's mostly by listening and by talking to people. And I think that's a more interactive way of learning language as opposed to reading. Reading is good if you already know the grammar or the structure of a language, I guess. Well, what led you to field recording? Well, this is a, an interesting story because in 2013, I moved to Edinburgh from Romania to study sound design at Edinburgh Napier University. And there was a big sort of change in my life. And we had much, much higher expenses all of a sudden. So I had to work much more. I was working freelance. I had about two or three days of university work per week. 
And the, the rest of the week was spent working with clients and, and finding jobs. And as you know, the freelance feast and famine cycle, where when you can get some work, you do it, you know, whatever you get, it, you can't really decline it. So I had a bit of a burnout towards the end of the year. I had been working for, at this point, I think maybe three or four months straight with no weekends, with no taking days off. And I just wasn't creative anymore. I felt like I was doing the same thing over and over. The work didn't feel rewarding anymore. I found it much more difficult to compose music and to do my sound design work and even to, to function. So I took about a month off and I flew back to Romania. I hired a car and I just drove through the mountains and it was beautiful. There were blizzards, it was snow, it was quiet. And I just spent this whole month recording and doing some photography and listening. And I think this experience, like this sort of contrast between full-on work with no plans of, of escaping it, and then switching all of a sudden to complete lack of care for anything else, you know, just being in the moment, listening to things. This made me appreciate it much more and made me realize that I was going like a wrong route. So ever since I returned back in early 2014, back to the UK, I realized that I need to do something that takes me out of the studio every now and then. Yeah, I had I already had some sound recording equipment that I used in the studio. I just took it out. I first traveled around Scotland, where I lived, and went into the highlands and went into the national parks and did sound recording over there. And even more than the sound recording aspect, the listening experience changed me. And I started to learn the names of the birds out here, and I started to learn about species and about ecology. And then slowly I traveled to, to places like Africa and then South America and, and Asia. And I realized that I can't really function. I, I cannot be creative in the studio without going out and first of all, taking time off, but also getting inspiration from nature and from living close to the land and close to people. And that's probably the long version of the story. Well, how did you start to identify the birds that you were hearing? As a sound recordist, whenever I record something, I want to slate the recording, even in the studio, for example. If I record a certain piece of equipment or a toy or anything like that, I want to slate it, so I want to say its name. Whenever I would be out and I would slate a recording towards the end of it, just before pushing stop, or even at, at first when I leave a, a rig out, I would say, I'm in this place, I'm in the Pentland Hills just outside Edinburgh. I can hear soft wind, I can hear this bird that's close by, and then maybe different birds in the distance. And it was so frustrating for me to not be able to name them. So I maybe knew I knew blackbirds and robins, but it didn't go beyond that. So I started to peruse the internet for places where I could identify birds. And Xenocanto, which is I think is the biggest website for storing species recordings, but my aim was to listen to as many of them as possible and to be able to kind of bring them back when I would be out and to say, that's a robin, for example, or that's a goldfinch, or that's a starling imitating a woodpecker or something like that. And it took me a few years before I got fluent in this new language. But at this point, many years later, I can identify like the most common birds in Britain, most common birds in Europe, some of the most common birds in Central, Eastern, Western Africa, maybe Southern Africa as well, a few of the, the, the birds in the Amazon, and some of the birds in Borneo and Southeast Asia. To me, there's a parallel there to language and your identification of the birds that I don't know if you, you would agree with or not, but... There seems to be something there about you that you're able to take the local sounds and language and, and retain them. No, I have to agree. There's various layers to this. So you can learn a bird's call and then say, that's the bird and that's about it. 
But also, when you go deeper, you can learn that a specific call is an alarm call, and then there's a contact call, and there's a call that chicks will utter when they want to be fed. So this took a little more involvement on my end. But also, you know, I've been lucky to have friends who are ornithologists and who are very dedicated to this. And whenever I'd have a, a mystery recording, I'd just send it to them and they would say, well, this is a so-and-so bird from Britain because they have different dialects. And it's maybe like an immature bird just learning to utter its call. So that to me is a very fascinating aspect, you know, not just the surface of identifying a bird call. But of course, I, I can't say I'm really good at it because there's a lot to learn. I'd rather focus on many other things at a lower level than to go deep into into bird calls. How did you develop your techniques for field recording? I've, I've watched numerous videos of yours and read your equipment reviews and had no idea that the technique of, for example, double mid-side... I didn't realize double mid-side even existed as, as a technique until I discovered the things that you were doing. How did you learn and develop your techniques for field recording? It was a very organic process. When I started to record anything, I don't even want to admit it, but I had a Zoom H4n. I got this in 2010 or 2011, and I would just point it at things and record things. And then I realized that one of the channels would be better for my use than the other. So I just either tried to record in mono or focus one of the mics to it towards the things I was recording. And then when, when I started to record ambiences, I realized that some stereo techniques sound better to my ears. For example, WarTF sounds cinematic or sounds like something you'd expect in a film, but AB, Spaced Omni, sounds more natural, sounds more like what you're hearing with your ears in a space. So I, I just experimented. I never thought about it like a thing that I had to master. I was just very happy to to go out and record things, to listen through microphones to my environment. And I just realized what I liked more. I liked a certain technique more than others. And I think around 2014, I did a sound recording course with Chris Watson and James Riley French in Norfolk here in the UK. And that's where I, Chris Watson had a double mid-side rig. He had a Sheps one, I think, if I remember correctly. And I, he just lent it to me. He said, like, take it out, listen to it. And then he showed us all how to decode double mid-side to surround or to stereo. And to me, that was a big eye-opener. And I realized that if you want to record surround or even stereo, but you can have so much flexibility with one package, with one blimp that you can put out, instead of having five microphones and having to think about five ways of protecting them from wind and of stabilizing them and of, of putting them in different places, this one package can yield some great results. But of course, double mid-side is not everything. Sometimes I feel like the is that like the stereo feel is not great just because the microphones are really close to one another. And I recently started to record with four Omni mics. And I use these small Lom Uzi mics, which is like level ears. So I can tie them to a tree trunk, mm -hmm. like at equal distances from one another. And I was I just got back from Borneo a few months ago and I was listening to my recordings made with a DMS versus the recordings I made with the quad system with the four omni mics and i prefer the omni mics they sound they put you better in the place than the double mid side that's not to say double mid side is not good you know sometimes it's the only solution or it's a better solution so i think yeah there's a, an application for each of these have you done any test recordings or have you experimented at all with ambisonics in the field I haven't done that that much. So again, on, on a different course with Chris Watson, I had the chance to record with the, the MBO. And first of all, it's very noisy. It uses much cheaper capsules just because there's several of them in there. There's four, I think. I think. I'm not really that happy with where Ambisonics is at the moment, especially in terms of recording in the field. 
I think it still needs more work. And I, I was very happy with the things that I already have, with the equipment that I already have. So I didn't see a need to, to look into that just yet. And of course, then for delivery, it's a bit more difficult to deliver ambisonics recordings, even decoded, and then have them be flexible for various uses. So unless it's something that's really monotonous, like water flowing or like wind, when you have a point source in your surround space or ambisonic space, that's going to be very difficult to repurpose to something else, to a piece of media. It's probably good for, for listening. Again, I don't have a space. I don't know, I have the, the playback system for ambisonics just yet. So I just felt like it's not the time for me to look into that. For the listener, first of all, you've got to check out the videos, which I'll link to in the show notes. But I've been watching these videos, these very extensive trips you take, and they seem like they take an enormous amount of planning, not only the trips alone, but the plans for where you're going to record, why you're going to record. What's your process of putting together one of these trips? So... Ever since I was a child, I was very fond of exploring. As I said, I grew up in a pretty wild place. And it was a different time as well. When I was about six or seven, I was allowed to go out with my friends and to travel on foot for a mile or even more without any adult supervision. So I was a bit feral like that, I would say. And there were forests and there were meadows and there were hills I could explore. And every day I would push my, my boundaries just a bit further. So I think what I'm doing at the moment is just like a reproduction of that on a different scale. So ever since my first trip outside Europe, when I went to South Africa, I realized that there's so much unexplored places in the world still. You know, whenever you think about it, okay, Google Maps can see everything. And, you know, it'll be understandable to say that there's no more places to explore, but that's plain wrong. For me, one of the elements that plays a role in this is being able to explore a place, being able to go to a place where people with microphones have never been or people with cameras sometime, or places like that where it's still wild and it's still raw and I can go there and I can take a snapshot and then come back and, and, and show it to others and people can listen and maybe feel a connection to these places. For me, rainforests, I think they're, I've been fascinated with rainforests for a long time. As you can hear every day in the news, these are places that are almost not there anymore. They're going extinct for various reasons. So I do want to focus on the places that might not be there in 10, 15, 20 years. And as a result, I've been able to go to the Congo rainforest, to the Amazon rainforest, to Borneo. And the process was not that straightforward. I was thinking of going to Central Africa for a very long time, but I had no way to know where to go for myself. I didn't know if there would be a nice, good soundscape for me to record or if everything would be like logging and mining and air traffic and industry. But then I learned about Gabon. Gabon is a country that's about the size of the UK but only has 2 million people, and they are mostly focused on the in the coastal cities. So it's basically that the population density is very low, which generally means that there's not a lot of encroachment onto the wild areas. Gabon was on my mind for a couple of years. I went to South Africa, I went to Senegal, I went to Ethiopia, but I was always thinking about finding a way to get to Gabon. And the process, you know, the, the logistics for that trip were very complicated. I was lucky enough to have a friend join me so we could split the expenses for the trip because it was really expensive as well. But as soon as I got into the country and as soon as I got over the initial hurdle of finding a vehicle and finding a, a local guide, once we were on our way, I think we met two or three other tourists 
over a month. So we were just there. There were us, and then there was the wilderness and the wildlife. And I think that's what I was looking for. You know, that was my aim for that trip. I wanted to be in a wild place. I wanted to record soundscapes that were free of a man-made sound. Mm-hmm. And to this day, that's I was able to record for 48 hours without any man-made sound in one of these places, which is unheard of in the Western world. If you're out in London, maybe not nowadays, but during regular times, there are like 10 different aircraft in, in the sky and there's distant traffic anywhere and there's people and there's industry and there's so much sound pollution that it's crazy. You can't really, if you grow up in one of these less developed places, you can't really picture it, you know? But then once you grow up in one of these places, like in the Western world, this is normal. This is what's expected. So as soon as you get away from it, something feels off. It feels like something's missing. So in a nutshell, I think, first of all, I want to focus on these areas. So when I think about a place I want to visit, I think about what's the chance of of anthropophony being huge in this place? Or is there a chance that I can find a place where I can record without getting interference from man-made sounds? And as far as your decision of where to go, is that based on the concept that you can go someplace to get nature without man-made sounds around? Or is it just a desire to, hey, let's go check out this country or this part of the world? I think there's a bit of both in there. So I'm I'm hopelessly in love with Africa. Of course, you know, Africa is a big continent. There's so many countries in there. Some of the places I like more than others just because I feel more connected to them. I went to Ethiopia once two years ago, and then I had to go back last year and might go back this year again if things go according to plan, just because I feel such a big connection to the place. And there's so much variety in there. But at the same time, there are some places that I'd like to go that are, I think, are not in as much danger of not being there anymore. Iceland, for example. Iceland has been on my mind for a while. I wanted to go there, but it's not. I think it's more stable than many places in Africa. So I'm, I keep putting that trip off and thinking about other exotic places, so to speak places where it's more difficult to get to, first and foremost. That's one of the things that attracts me. It's easy to go to Thailand, for example, or it's easy to go to Tenerife or wherever, just because a lot of tourists go there. But for me, I'd rather leave other people to do this, to go and record there. And I want to go to the places where it's truly wild and where it's truly a challenge. Because just because I I have these skills, you know, I can plan the trip, I can do my research, I can find the local fixers and the local contacts. It's just uh, whenever I'm in one of these places, I feel like it's my responsibility to gather these recordings and photographs and videos and to do it, of course, in a respectful and in a, in a calm way. But also when I bring it back, I need to bring it to the attention of, of everyone else and use my platform to say that some of these places may not be there anymore. Some of these places may become extinct in, in 10 years and things, some things need to be done about it. Have you been back to certain places and noticed a significant drop in activity of the nature? Well, that's the case with Romania, because I grew up there and I've been recording there for many years. In Africa, I don't think I've had enough. I've been twice to Ethiopia, once in 2018 and once in 2019, and the difference wasn't enough to notice. But in Romania, many of the places that I used to record five years ago have now been selectively logged, which... Some of the research may say that it's fine, you know, it's okay to cut down the oldest trees and leave the forest more or less intact. But in my experience, a lot of the species that depend on these old trees, they're not really there anymore. So, for example, there was, there was this one valley or an area in the forest where you could get nice reflections from the edges of the forest. And when I went there the first time in 2016 or 2017, I could hear three or four different species of owls, including the, the, the biggest owl in the world, an Eurasian eagle owl. And it was just beautiful. I, I, I could just spend nights there listening and recording. And then I went there again last year. And 
the bigger trees had been cut and I could hear no more owl species. Everything else was there. The, the smaller songbirds were there, but the owls were gone just because they need these huge holes in the trees. And you can't have a huge hole in a very small tree, right? So they had just deserted the place. And once the big raptors disappear, there's all kinds of bad chain effects on the, on the ecosystem. You know, the people can't really think about or control in any way. And that's a clear example of ecosystems changing because of man's actions on them. When anybody goes anywhere with any kind of, I'll just say generically, recording equipment, whether that be cameras or microphones, that draws attention. And some people's behavior changes as a result. They start to ask questions. Have you had any negative interactions as a result of carrying this recording equipment with you around the globe? Yeah, that has happened several times. You know, even <laughs> I was once in New York a few years ago and I was just visiting a friend basically and I had the Sony PCMD100 handheld and I was just recording the reflections of a siren from the, the buildings. And this one lady, she came to me and she said, sir, you shouldn't be taping here. You can't be taping here. I'm going to call the police on you. I said, well, it's fine. Don't worry. You know, I'm not going to. I stopped it and I, I moved on and it was fine. It, I don't think it's, it depends on where I am. A lot of the time that when this happens, it's because, especially in, let's say, in less developed countries where there's a, lot, a bit more corruption, people realize that you have expensive equipment and it's not a good idea to just flash your big cameras and big equipment around. Sometimes when I'm in a national park, for example, and I want to record sounds, some of the rangers or some of the park authorities will realize what I'm doing and they say, well, right, you're here to explore the place, but you also do it, you're, you're filming. For them, there's no difference between filming and sound recording. So they will say, you need so-and-so permit, which costs maybe a thousand times more than just being there as a tourist. So that has happened once in, in Senegal, in Nyokolokoba National Park. We went there once, we spent two nights in a very remote place. We did very good sound recording and we, we had to go out to the park because there was no electricity. So we had to charge our, our batteries. And when we went back for a second tour, they saw our equipment and they said, well, right, you need to pay about 2,000 pounds per person to be here per day just so you can use your camera equipment and your microphones. And there was no, we couldn't make ourselves understood. We couldn't talk to the person. They were just adamant that we had to do that. And it was so good that we might have even paid that money, but we had to drive to the nearest town, which was maybe 200 kilometers away. So it was basically like a two-day drive to get there. Who knows how long to wait before we could get these permits. So we just ended up moving on, going to the next destination, just because the rangers and the park authorities were opaque. They wouldn't get a suggestion or they couldn't come to an understanding with us. Is there ever a situation where government people see your stuff and raise questions like, what are you here for? And what are you, what are you going to be doing with this? Not so far. So I think many of these places that I've been to, they have seen some documentary teams at one point or another in, in the history of the national parks, for example. So they know that people with cameras and microphones, they go there. The, the focus of these teams is to preserve and to bring these places to the attention of people. So I think they're quite understanding about it, but there's a lot of cost that comes with it, you know, because they also associate big teams, big documentary teams with the BBC or with Nat Geo, for example, which, regardless of who you, you talk about, they have big budgets, so they will be able to, to spend a lot of money. And I've never had any like security issues or any problems with authorities asking me very weird questions. They'll just say, well, yeah, you need to pay so-and-so to be here. And that was probably much more expensive than if I was just taking photos with my phone. Do you end up carrying a lot of cash on you for situations where you've got to pay people off? Yeah, that happens quite often. 
I've learned my lesson in Gabon. So I think I had to spend about four days in one place because the only way out of that place was to take a train. There were two bridges that were the entrance and exit from this village, and they had both been, they just basically, you know, there had been a flood, so the bridges had collapsed. So the only way, there was a train which could use one of the bridges that were still intact, but all the money that we had was not enough to get a, a ticket for this train. So we were relying on driving out of the place and going back to a, like a bigger city to get some money from the ATM there. And I think I spent two days on the phone with Western Union and MoneyGram. And eventually I used World Remit, which was a different money transfer service, because I couldn't send money to Gabon. As soon as I, I did that, my bank called me. Someone's in Gabon, you know, they're trying to, to use your cards. We, we blocked everything. I said, dude, I just, I let you know that I'm going to Central Africa before I left. Yeah, but that's a very shady area, you know. I think it's, it's better that we, we stop all transactions and we'll send you a new card. How, how, how do I do now? What do I do now, right? Right. Eventually, I managed to send money directly from my account to someone who was in Libreville, in the capital of Gabon. And this person got in touch with our guide's wife. And some, somehow we ended up sending the money and, and receiving the money that we needed. Because in Africa, everything's, you know, if they use the money transfer services that you can use over your cell phone. Mm. That was much easier. But I wasn't aware of that. So to avoid that in the future, and whenever I go to, a, to one of these countries that are either a bit more difficult to send money to, I just take a bunch of cash with me and I split them into bits, put them in plastic bags in various parts in my backpacks and luggage and on, on my person as well. So yeah, it's not easy, but it's the only way that works. It's a whole new set of skills you have to learn to use to survive, I guess. I guess, you know, I think it comes with whenever you travel, this is what you do, you know, this is what everyone does. So it's not difficult. You just have to keep it in mind whenever you do it. And sometimes you have too much cash on you that might look weird. So we, you don't take out a wallet full of big notes. You keep notes for paying off bribes and small gifts like that to people. You put it in your pockets and everything else with like, like bigger notes for paying park officials. You keep it in a bigger bag somewhere else. It's, yeah, I think you learn it as you do. I don't even think about it anymore. You're not going in with a suitcase full of cash. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I'd like to avoid that if hold possible. Hold on a second. Let me uh, pull out a few bills for you here. <laughs> hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Do you ever get scared and get panicked in situations that you've been in? Yeah, it's impossible not to, to be scared, is it? And sometimes when you're in a new place, it takes a while before you realize that everything's normal and everyone's doing their own stuff and they don't really care about you that much. Or if they do, you're just, just because you're like a, a novelty and that's about it. But going back to Gabon, there were a couple of incidents where we bumped into some drunk truckers and I was wearing like a white thing on my head. It sort of looked like a turban for some reason, basically getting shade from the sun. And this guy, he was visibly drunk and he was looking at me and he was telling me that I'm a Muslim and he's like making signs and like, like I won't come to shoot you or something like that. And that didn't feel, I didn't feel comfortable there. So I, I talked to my friend and to our guide and I said that and our guide said, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's just like drunk people. Nothing like this happens over here. So in the end, it was fine. And then again, when we had to take the famous train ride, it was midnight. We had bought tickets in advance. So we were just going through the train cars looking for our seats. And of course, there were like a bunch of chickens and goats and stuff. And our seats were taken. And I was trying to reason with these people to say, oh, look, these are our seats. You know, we, we are supposed to be here. And just laughing at us and said, oh, LeBlanc, LeBlanc, you know, the, the white guys, look at the white guys, they, they're trying to take the seats. And it, it sort of became a bit too lively. So I just, I decided to move on and we, we moved on. And we found a different couple of seats further on and everything was fine in the end. It was a bit tense, I would say. You know, I was always hearing the white people, the white people. That made me feel a bit uncomfortable. So I wanted to avoid any confrontation or anything like that. And yeah, in the end, it was fine, I guess. Do you make it a point to always travel with somebody else? Not necessarily for security reasons. I like traveling with other people and I like sharing these experiences with them. But when I'm in a country that I don't know, I usually either have a driver or a guide just because there are things like the lay of the land, let's say. There are things that no one tells you. For example, in Ethiopia, two years ago, we were driving through this beautiful piece of countryside. There were hills and forested areas and cacti. And at one point, there were like a big group of people in front of us blocking the road. And they were chanting and they were yelling. And I had this local driver who said, no, this is fine. I worked this out. And he stopped and he gave them maybe $1 worth of money, you know, like some coins. And they were happy, you know, this, and that was it, you know. But I saw a different car who was coming from the opposite side. And I don't think they gave them money. So they were trying, like, moving the car and you know, trying to block the car and doing a lot of menacing things. My, my guide explained to me that this is like the local football team. And this is a way for them to raise funds to buy balls and equipment and stuff. And, you know, being a Westerner in, in this part of the world, it's very difficult to know these things in advance. Endless things like that. But for me, if I have a local contact or fixer, it's so that they can navigate all these unwritten rules and all the things like that. And I don't think I've ever been to one of these countries without having a local contact. Just because it smooths things out, there's less of a headache for me to understand what's happening and to deal with all these things. How do you arrange for a fixer or, or a guide how does that even, ha I can't even imagine how that happens. Hi, I'm coming from this country and I'm going to be recording. I'll pay you to take me places. 
It's a bit more, more involved than that, I guess. Tourists go to all kinds of places in the world, even like the, the most dangerous ones. There, There's a specific type of tourism that deals with just going to risky places. And there will always be locals who are happy to, to take you around, to show you around. And there's places online, like there's a Lonely Planet forums, for example, or even TripAdvisor, where you can go search by destination. And you just ask people, have you ever been to Gabon? Can you recommend me a reliable guide, driver, or car hire service, or something like that? And most of the time, it's worked out well for me. There's never been a serious problem. Whenever I went somewhere, I found a person to, to take me. The worst that has happened is that some of the guys that I used, or some of the guys that I worked with, they kept asking for more money, or they were never happy. But this is expected, sometimes expected. I added to my estimate of uh, the budget, so in the end, it's, it's not such a big problem. I think is the worst part is when you look for for such a person and the only re- replies you get are, well, there's this guy, but he's very unreliable and there's no one else beside that guy. So, well, in the end, I have to go with this guy because I'd rather not go alone. But yeah, you have to keep in mind all the possible drawbacks. Have you ever had a guide just abandon you? No, so far that has not been the case. Sometimes I have to have porters or members of the local militia or security or even chef. So whenever I have had to work with these people, there's never been a problem where they, they left. I'm preparing for a trip to Papua New Guinea, which was supposed to take place this year, but it's probably going to be pushed to next year now. And that's a big problem over there. The people who you can hire as guides and as porters, they sometimes just disappear and sometimes take some of your stuff with them as well, which is not ideal. So this is why I have to go into it a bit more deeply. The next step would be for me to go to the Royal Geographic Society here in, in London and read through expedition reports and find out about really reliable guides and reliable porters. And this would be better for me to know than just perusing forums online, because this is, these are people who have been there and they can recommend me people that I can rely on, let's say. Have you ever felt the need to carry a machete or a, or a gun with you on any of these trips? Everyone carries machetes in the, in the rainforest. It's a given, I guess. It's a big problem for people who don't know how to use them. It can make a lot of damage if you're just like whacking stuff around and you, your machete just slides off of your hand or you, you're not careful enough. So whenever I have machetes, I either use them very carefully or have other, other people use them. Whenever we have porters or guides, they've used them much longer than me. So I will have them use the, the machetes. And guns, I don't think that's a good idea. They sort of bring to mind more offensive abilities than, rather than defensive or rather than just being able to, to survive in the wilderness. I don't know of anyone who goes to these places and, and hires an army or anything. We have had to have local militia members in northern Ethiopia, but that's a different story there because there's been a bit of a conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea that just recently ended a few years ago. But there are still militia groups who come over the border and there's been an incident a few years ago where a German tourist was killed while they were going in the same place that we were going, the volcano. And we did have two militia members with AK-47s, but they never had to use them. And I don't think they even knew how to use them. They didn't really seem like they cared about their weapons too much. It was just sort of to show that we had them there. And it was also a way to kind of give back to the community. So the community there, they didn't really have a lot of industry or anything else besides tourism. So tourism is a big thing. So... You can get porters, you can get the, the local cook, you can buy provisions from them. But if you can pay another person to be your security, you know, why not? It was not such a big investment, and I was happy to give back to the community. What can you tell me? I'm sure you've learned a, a ton about packing over the years. 
I'm curious what your packing tips are for people interested in doing this or packing tips in general for travel. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm still learning how to pack properly. You know, when my trip to Borneo a few months ago, I still realized that I brought too much equipment and I always tend to bring too much equipment. I'm always very optimistic that I'll have enough time to use all my gear that I bring along, all the cameras, all the microphones and recorders. And looking at it from, from an, a different perspective, I want to have redundancy on a trip like this. When you're in the rainforest, there's not really much you can do if your battery charger just packs up and doesn't work anymore. So if you don't have another option or another a different powering option, you're kind of there for nothing anymore. You, you can, of course, enjoy it, but you can't record anymore. So I think about it very clearly. I make a plan before I leave. I think about all the recorders that I, I will bring with me and the powering options and the cables and everything that comes with it. And I want to have at least two or even three for anything that can break. So I will bring my 633 as, I'm, as my main recorder, but I also bring a small mix pre and then a couple of or even five handheld recorders at times. And for microphones, I'll bring my double mid side rig, but also two quad rigs and also smaller level ears that I can use with handheld recorders and cables, plenty of cables so that one, if one of them doesn't work anymore, or it breaks or something, I can replace it. Yeah, I just end up with a lot of gear. And then I have two big suitcases and a big backpack. And I, I fit all the gear in so that, you know, I, I try to fit clothing in there so that everything doesn't bump into each other and doesn't break. So the clothing is a bit is a bit of an afterthought. Sometimes I have to go somewhere and I just buy a bunch of clothing when I'm over there just because I couldn't fit it in my luggage. But one of the most important things is, especially for rainforest travel, is to have ways to protect yourself, but most importantly, your equipment from humidity. So a lot, you know, a big part of my gear that I bring is dry bags and Ziploc bags and silica gel packets, and of course, you know, like waterproof equipment for myself, but that's not really a priority. I think that the gear is the priority here. I was watching one of your videos and just shaking at the image of all of the bees that kept following you. And it got me to, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with, with what you do and would love to dabble in it. But then it, it started to make me seriously question, like, would I be comfortable doing that? And it takes a certain level of being comfortable with being uncomfortable in situations like that, I guess, to tolerate bees and other insects and other intrusions. So the bees were a surprise in Gabon first and then again in the Amazon. So we, we had looked into all the dangers. I made a, a risk assessment just before the trip and I looked at, you know, like snake bite and the various diseases you can get from mosquito bites and ticks. And there's other, even deadfall, for example, like branches randomly falling off trees in the rainforest. So I was prepared to deal with like much more dangerous things or prepared. I, I just had thought about it beforehand. But the bees were like a bonus when we got there. <laughs> we realized that, of course, in the rainforest, there's a lot of rain. So all the, the minerals are washed away by rain. Wildlife has to kind of find them wherever it's possible. And of course, you know, when you sweat, there's a lot of mineral minerals that you excrete, you know. So the bees were just so happy that they could find some minerals. They just swarm on us and try to drink our sweat. And they weren't aggressive or anything. But of course, as soon as they got between the clothing and our bodies, they would just go into panic mode and just sting. That happened a few times. So we had to find a way to gently brush them off without setting their tiny alarms, right? So we just took it as, as you know, sometimes 
I feel like when I'm around in the UK, if I go to a national park here or something, I tend to reach for my phone to look for like social media updates or something like that. But I think that's just because there's not really a lot of immediate danger or, or immediate consequences to my acts in a national park in the UK. Whereas being in, in Gabon, being constantly attacked by bees and hearing elephants in the distance and being attacked by gorillas or something like that, it felt so immediate. It felt like I was a part of the landscape instead of just being there as, as a guest. And I think that made me experience the soundscape in a much more different way. It was it's difficult to, to put into words, but basically I could hear much better because my body was always in this, let's say, panic mode just because there's bees over there. There's a gorilla over there. There's elephants over there. You know, you have to listen. You know, you have to be aware of where you are. So that enhanced my experience of being in the forest. I never looked at it like a sort of, well, I hear there's bees. Maybe we shouldn't come here. Or it's too much for me. It's difficult. It was all part of it. And I don't know, I might be a bit different from others. I might be privileged just because I grew up in the countryside and I grew up being used to, to lots of insects and, and being dirty and being sweaty and things like that. But if my friend Matt, who's from New York, and my friend Stain, who's from Belgium, you know, they didn't have this luxury of growing up like this. And they still adapted to, to living in the rainforest. So I think it's just managing your expectations and having the proper mindset when you go to these places. If you go there expecting just beautiful soundscapes, but you being sort of in a, in a glass house or in a protected from everything, it's not going to, to be enjoyable. But as soon as you change this from those expectations to it's going to be rough, it's going to be difficult, I'm going to be stung, probably bitten by things. Who knows what else can happen? You know, you, you try to mitigate risk as much as possible, but also you're aware of it and that changes your whole experience. You experience what humans did millions of years ago when they were hunter-gatherers. Yeah, possibly. Now you sell the recordings that you do and, and they're quite, I mean, we're talking about stereo and surround sound content with gigabytes of material, with metadata, good for SoundMiner and, and the other apps like that. Do you recoup in sales what you spend on these trips? That is a question that comes up quite a lot. And it's something that has been on my mind for a while now. First of all, I think it's, it's, that's the wrong way to look at things. When you go at it from a return on investment perspective, there's going to be places that are never a good idea to go to, like Gabon, for example. That was a huge investment. I could have bought a small car with the money that I spent going there. No, I haven't recouped my investment two years later. But that was never my idea in the first place. I'm lucky enough to have a job. I'm a freelance sound designer and composer, and I work with this game developer in the States and in, in, in Dallas. So for me, my day job allows me to live a good living and also to redirect these resources to travel and to do sound recording and to do photography and to work with conservation initiatives. So for me, it's never a question of, will I make enough money by going to this place? I think about it more in terms of portfolio. So I want to build a portfolio of places that I've been to, of recordings that I've made, not necessarily for selling sound effects libraries, even like selling albums for people to listen to or composing music with sound recordings or sending these recordings back to the national parks so that they can share them with people who are interested in going there. Having said all that, the sound effects libraries is probably the biggest way for me to monetize my trips. You know, being on YouTube kind of can be nowadays considered a job. I don't put as much content on there as I could just because I have other things to do. But that can bring some money and doing the equipment reviews and stuff like that. There's a ways to monetize that as well. But for me, the biggest source of revenue from these trips and from my sound recording is still selling libraries. 
And I could probably live a very modest life if I stopped doing anything now and just sold my libraries, because that brings us an income every month. But of course, that's not the case, and I don't want to do that. I also don't try to, to maximize my earnings. There's an argument for going it like in very deep levels, looking at where you put your buy now buttons or colors you use, you know, like UI, UX, trying to make as much money, testing different versions. I don't think I'm really interested in that either. I find that taking a more wholesome approach and thinking about my trips and my sound recording as a huge portfolio and as a way to check a lot of boxes, you know, like to travel, to do sound recording, to help conservation initiatives, to do photography, to learn, to take breaks from my studio work. So I think on a whole, all this for me is beneficial. I get much more than I put in just because it's a, it's so satisfying for me. It's so rewarding. And thinking about it in terms of just money would be wrong. It would be very pragmatic, but of course, it's not what I'm uh, looking to do. Well, it's great because these libraries, not only do they preserve and document those sounds for others for the future, because once it's recorded and put out there, it's out and it's great for everybody. But also, I can imagine from your perspective, these experiences are like no other experience to go to these yeah. places and experience the people, the act of doing the recording. I mean, it brings a whole nother level of enjoyment to the process of recording, I would assume. Absolutely. And I know that I'm privileged. Some of my friends who do this, they have to make a living with their sound effects libraries and they have to think about it in much more pragmatic ways and to carefully manage their expenses on such a trip. A lot of them don't have the luxury of going to these very difficult to reach places just because it costs too much. So I am aware of that and I think I'm privileged. You know, I can't be more grateful for it. But at the same time, it's much more than just money, I guess. That's my... <laughs> That's how I, I do things nowadays. I think some things, they cost money because of their intrinsic value, and other things, they cost money just because of what they can offer in, in exchange. And of course, on a certain market, some people are, they pay tens of thousands of dollars to go to Antarctica, for example, to be there for a week, and they don't get a return on investment for that. They just go there to experience what it is to be like there. So it's a mix of, of all these perspectives, I guess, for me. Do you ever go back to your recordings and reminisce about when you hear certain sounds, does it transport you mentally back to that time period? That happens a whole lot. And that, that used to happen to me with music. So let's say I would listen to a piece of music that I listened to five years ago during a certain part of my life, and that would instantly take me back there. Yeah, that happens with sounds as well. There are certain species that I listen to, and I can never disassociate from my experience when I've heard that species for the first time like certain barbets from Borneo or like the screaming pia in the Amazon or like some cuckoos in, in Southern Africa. It's mm. just, for me, it's tied into my experience. So when I listen to it, either as a like in a recording or if I go to a different place in the world where I can find that specific species, I'm instantly taken back to, to the first time I've heard it. I have to say that I recently I've, I've changed up my morning routine quite a bit. I've been getting up at like 4.45 in the morning and I go out in my backyard, it's dark, and I turn on a light underneath an umbrella and sit down on this outdoor furniture and take notes and just brainstorm about things I'm working on. And my recent, well, not recent, actually, I've been following you for a little while now, and watching the videos and listening to the stuff that you do, it's given me a whole new awareness of my surroundings. And so in the morning, when I do that, I think, oh, interesting, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing this, or... I'll be someplace taking a walk in nature and I'll hear a woodpecker and 
it just you're, you've been on my mind a lot lately, just your adventures, and it's very inspirational to me. You have a day job, and that day job is sound design and music composition. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. And it's so funny. We've been I've been passionately talking about field recording, and now we're talking about the day job of sound design, and it sounds a little more mundane here. So can, can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. So first of all, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that I've had this sort of effect on the way you perceive sound and you, you think about things. I just love to hear that whenever people tell me, even if I'm not the, the main cause for it, I love to hear about people's experiences, listening and noticing things. And especially now with the whole situation that's happening in the world, it is a very good time to just slow down and pay more attention and be more mindful. And then to answer your question, so I've been working freelance with People PeopleFun is a game developer based in Dallas. And I've been working with them since 2013. I used to do maybe 10, 20 hours a week. And then ever since a couple of years ago, the company, you know, they put out this game that blew up and has been number one in the App Store for more than two years now. And basically, I'm the, I'm the, the audio department for the team. And I do music composition. I do sound design. I do game testing. I do get some game development, puzzle development. I'm very well embedded in the team and I love what I do. It's much more than a freelance gig where you're on board for the duration of a development cycle and that's about it. I'm a member of the team, you know, I've been there to the office and I met everyone who was working there back then. Back when I started, there were about six or seven other people and now there's about 60 others. And I still feel like I have a word to say in, in how the games reach the, the App Store and the player in the end. I can make a difference. I can make decisions in terms of audio, which doesn't really happen in a lot of other freelance settings like this. So I feel like it's more than a day job. I love doing what I do. For a long time for me, I felt like I'd just be happy doing sound design, working in my studio, and that's about it. Of course, afterwards, I went through my, my burnout period, and that's when I realized that I wanted to mix it with field work. But after being for a month in the rainforest, I do miss being back in my studio, waking up, having my coffee, doing my tasks for the day. So I find that that's the perfect mix for me. It's about 75% studio work and 25% being out in the field and going on crazy adventures like that. What are the important tools of the trade, not necessarily gear, but what is it one needs to understand to get into this? Because I notice you work with, is it WWISE, audio implementation? We use WISE at PeopleFun. I did a course in WISE and I worked on a, on a different project using WISE. If you want to do serious game audio, you can easily use WISE, FMOD. There's a bunch of smaller software like this. It used to be much less important. Nowadays, it's really important that you know how audio behaves in a game. If you want to be able to talk to the programmers and to explain what you need from them and to also implement the audio in the game. You have to be aware of how audio files, how stuff that you create ends up behaving in the game. And then you don't have, really have to know programming, but it does help as a sound designer for video games mm -hmm. or even as a music composer. But beyond the technical aspects like like Wise and FMOD and, and other things, I think you, you need to love video games. I, I know a lot of people who wanted to get into game audio, but hadn't really played any games in their lives. They didn't really care much for it. And of course, they ended up not getting a good job or working in film or working in other industries just because, I don't know, if you have a choice in what to do in life, you better choose to do something you, you enjoy, right? You know, mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no question about it. And of course, you want your communication skills to be top notch. A lot of the times that I've worked on projects, especially as a freelancer, I was brought on board maybe a week or two weeks or a month before the project had to ship. And I was told, this is the game. You just do your audio and send it to us and that's it. And of course, I would be 
at this moment, I don't have to do that anymore and I'm, I'm happy about it. But when you're in a position where you can't really choose your clients, you can't also be upset or angry about it. You can't tell people, well, you should have brought me on board last year or something. So you have to make do with what you're given. You have to be very diplomatic about it and you have to kind of explain to people to be assertive about the needs of audio in a project. And also just do your job and do as good a job as you can with what you're given. It's not as easy as it might seem when you're in school and you learn about sound design. And all you want to do is to record and design sounds and create really good, punchy, impactful sounds. Then you realize that a lot of your job is to download the newer build, try to see why your sounds aren't playing, try to mitigate issues like that, try to talk to the programmers to explain them that you need more resources. So it's a mixed bag in the end, but I've learned it being freelance and I think it can be learned. And also at university in, in Edinburgh, at, at Napier University, I learned a lot about being a member of a team and being able to offer and to take feedback. So I think these all are good skills to have. So in a typical day doing work for the team that you do, when it comes to sound design, what exactly is involved there? What are your tasks that you typically have to accomplish? A lot of the tasks are, since I'm a one-man audio team. I have to download the latest game builds, either to play them in Unity or onto the... We work on mobile games, so I have to play them on my mobile and to make lists of things that either need to be fixed, changed, or improved, or things that I need to come up with. A lot of the times, the team doesn't really think about audio, so they, they might say, well, there's a new feature coming up, but then they might forget about it, or they might think it doesn't really require audio, whereas I wouldn't agree, so I would say, right, this new feature that was just added, this needs a bunch of new sounds. I'm going to create them and I'm going to check them in via my versioning software. And then I, I will say to the programmer that I'm assigned to for that specific project, I need so-and-so sounds to be hooked up and I will create a Jira ticket and then it will eventually reach them. And they might say, well, I don't have any time or this doesn't work or something has been changed and you need to go back to it. Or they might hook it up and they pass it back on to me and I'll check it if things are good. And that's part of the process. It's also meeting with people and talking to them about the specific needs of a project before and as a project is being developed and trying to keep in the loop, even if, as I said, people might not realize that audio needs to be present in a certain setting or for a certain meeting, I will be on their minds. I'll try to be assertive and to always talk to people and to get in touch with them, to ask about things. And I say, right, even if you don't really think that audio can benefit or can make a difference here, I would like to still hear about it. And sometimes audio drives other types of development. For example, some of the sound effects that I create, which are a bit more musical, like musical cues for UI elements, I will create one or two or three of them and I'll, I'll put them in. And then some of the graphics artists or the, the programmers will create a different pop-up message, for example, but they will use the same pacing just because they created that specific new effect to the tune of the old effect. So if they have already have a, like a, a blueprint in place, it's much easier for them to, to play around and to add these elements to a timeline. So I think it goes both ways. And I think I've managed to, to educate the programmers that I work with and to sort of meet them halfway to sort of understand that, of course, audio is not a priority when you just have a prototype, but sometimes it helps and they manage to understand my side of things. So I think I have a good balance there. And for the audience, for the uninitiated, you mentioned Jira Ticket. Jira is essentially like a project management software that yep. a lot of different companies use, and it's how you track bugs or the progress of a particular project that you're working on.
for the audience, where is it best to find out more about you? What website? Well, my commercial website is mindful-audio.com. And I'm also, I can also be found at georgevlad.com or at youtube.com slash georgevlad or at soundcloud.com slash georgevlad. I'll put a link in the show notes to all those things. George, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm absolutely captivated by the things that you're doing, and I'm living vicariously through you. So please keep doing what you're doing, because I really think you're you're drawing attention to a lot of very important issues around ecology, and you're really doing everybody a great service by making those recordings available to buy. Matt, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for the kind words and for inviting me to talk on your podcast. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, thank you. And you take care. You too. Bye-bye. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. George Vlad here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you to Anne-Marie Plo for editing Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music and the magic voice of Mr. Chuck Smith in the intro there. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Check us out on social media and spread the word. Stop by workingclassaudio.com sometime. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>